So last Sunday was our Reformation Sunday, and Joey Boyd preached from Jude verse 3 to us. And the, the passage called us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So last week we talked a lot about the faith, and, and we remembered that we aren't just called to generic belief, but we are called to believe the faith, to believe the gospel. We are called to understand that, that the scriptures reveal a truth to us, a propositional truth that we are called to understand and to defend. Uh, this morning we confess the Apostles' Creed together, which is a faithful summary of the faith, of that truth, of that good deposit that's been entrusted to us. And in a culture that values faith and belief without any concern for what we believe in at all, just as long as you believe in something, you're good, we need to remember that it's not just having faith that saves, but rather it's the faith that saves. It's the gospel that saves. It's the truth of Scripture centered on Jesus Christ that saves. And so I want to thank Joey for preaching that sermon last week. It was important, and, and we need to remember our call as a church, every one of us, to contend for this faith. With that said, we are prone to pendulum swinging. We're, we're prone to overcorrection. When we see an error, we, we tend to go the other way completely on things, right? Some of you are from uh, traditions and denominations where, where, you, where you maybe swung completely the other way and then realize, well, maybe there's not all so bad back in that tradition. And, and, but this is what we do. We just pendulum swing back and forth as human beings. And, and there's a danger for us here that we need to think about is as we, face, as we place an emphasis on the faith, as we place an emphasis on, on the gospel and orthodoxy and, and all of these things, that we might forget that there really is a personal side to all of this. There really is a subjective side to all of this. Joey preached on this last week that there really is our faith in the faith, but we can easily forget that. We might be theologically accurate, we might be historically orthodox, we might be biblically sound, but forget that all of this Christian truth, all of this Christian doctrine demands a real, personal, living response from each one of us. Just as belief in itself doesn't save apart from the truth, so in the same way knowing the truth doesn't save apart from personal belief. Let's not only just give you a, a definition here of saving faith as these two things come together, these two sides of the coin. Saving faith happens when we personally respond in faith to the faith. That's saving faith, when we, when we personally place our faith in the faith that's been revealed in the scriptures. And so this morning we're going to see two living pictures of what this personal response of faith actually looks like. We have the faith, we have the truth, we have the, the claims of Scripture, we have the, the doctrine of Scripture, but how do we know that we have placed our faith in these truths? And this morning we're going to see it, examples of this faith. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're looking at verses 18 through 26. Continuing our series through Matthew, where we're looking at Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the scriptures and what it means to follow him as his disciples. And we're jumping in uh, to a scene where Jesus has been uh, answering questions from people who are just trying to figure out 
Who is Jesus? And he, he, he was so different from any other religious figure, any other rabbi, any other teacher. And so they've been asking Jesus questions about why don't you do these things? And why do you do these things? And Jesus has been answering them. And as he has, he's been making these outstanding claims about himself. We're going to look a little bit more at that. But, but what Matthew likes to do is he likes to just go back and forth between Jesus teaching something about himself, and then Jesus doing something that, that just brings credibility to what he's just said. And so today we are jumping in to uh, this context where Jesus has just been making these outstanding claims about who he is and why he came. And now we're going to see Jesus in action uh, as we read these verses. So Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold... A ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. So I'm going to take a few minutes this morning to walk through these verses just as far as the narrative goes. And then we will, uh, after we do that, we'll look at what it means this morning. But there's really four parts to this story. And it begins with a ruler coming to Jesus. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. So who is this ruler that came to Jesus? We know from the other Gospels, uh, the, the parallel accounts, that this man's name was Jairus. And he was a ruler of the local synagogue. And so Jairus then, this ruler, was a respected religious figure in the community. And if you think about where we've been in Matthew, we, we realize that people like Jairus have begun to not really like people like, like Jesus and his disciples. They, they've been having issues with Jesus. So, so Jairus was, was a Jewish religious leader, and, and so he would have been one of the people that, as Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, he would have said, how can you do that? That's going to make you unclean. And he would have been someone who said to Jesus, why don't you fast? You're supposed to fast like we fast. Jesus has been answering these questions. But in this moment, this ruler, this respected religious leader in the community, all of a sudden, none of that matters to him. All of a sudden, he is on his knees before Jesus. Why? Well, we read his situation. My daughter has just died. My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jairus, though maybe in any other situation, would have all these questions about Jesus and, and would uh, disagree with what Jesus is teaching and doing and, and, and struggle with that. Now his daughter is dead. And in this moment, he, he realizes, I, I only have one hope. There's, there's one person I'm going to go, I'm going to fall on my knees before this Jesus and and just such faith, there's such faith in this passage. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. It's not wishful thinking. It, it, it's, it's I know, I know that you can do this, Lord. And even more amazingly, Jesus responds in essentially saying, yes, I can. He, he doesn't, if someone came to me and said, come raise my daughter or raise my son, I would say, I, I can't do that. And, and someone that maybe was even somewhat delusional 
maybe would just say, well, we'll see what we can do. But Jesus just rises and follows him. He's saying, yeah, let's let, we'll do that. We'll go. We'll go and, and raise your daughter. And so Jesus rises and follows this ruler, he follows Jairus to his daughter who has died. The second part of the story then comes in verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So, so they are on their way to the ruler's house, and, and now a new person enters the scene. A woman comes to Jesus, and this woman has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And so she's suffering this chronic condition. And what we need to understand about this woman in this condition is according to the Old Covenant law, she was perpetually unclean. In Leviticus 15, we read this about someone in her situation. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, she shall be shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So this was her life. She was living a life perpetually unclean because of this unceasing condition that she had. And so this woman is, is not only suffering from this condition, but she's also an outcast in Jewish society. She, she can't come near. No one can touch her. She can't touch anybody. She can't, if you sit on the chair she sat on, you're unclean. So she has to be away and removed from everybody. And yet this woman also comes to Jesus. And look at what she says in verse 21. She said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. That this, this woman has concluded that if she touches Jesus then rather than making him unclean, that he can make her clean and that he can make her well. It's interesting that she reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. That word fringe is probably referring to the tassel of his garment. And the tassels of Jewish garments were not uh, just inconsequential, but God himself in the Old Covenant even prescribed the tassels for people to wear in Numbers 15, he described that they should wear these tassels on their garments, four uh, tassels on the, on the bottom of their garments, and that as they walked, you know, these tassels would go back and forth, and there's a blue cord on them, and the point was to remind them to obey his commandments. To obey his, and so as a Jewish person walked, these tassels would remind them, I need to walk in the ways of God. I need to walk in light of the commandments of the one who redeemed us from Egypt. That's what the tassels represented. In Jesus' day, though, it's interesting that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for making their tassels long. So what does that tell us about these tassels? It tell us, tells us that in, by, by this day and age, the, the tassel itself represented something of someone's holiness to the people. The Pharisees, by making their tassels long, were saying, look how holy I am, look how righteous I am, look how obedient I am, look how long my tassel is, right? And so, so that gives us a little bit of perspective on what the tassel meant. And she reaches out and she touches the fringe of his garment and believes that this can make her clean. It's almost as if she believes this, this man Jesus is so truly holy that his cleanness, his holiness can undo my uncleanness. Which again is not the way that cleanness and uncleanness worked in the Old Covenant, but there was something unique about Jesus and, and, and 
We don't know exactly what she was thinking, but she concludes that if she touches him, she would be clean. And she, she comes behind, doesn't make herself known, uh, really sneaks up behind Jesus and touches the fringe. Well, Jesus does not let her go unnoticed. And so he turns before everyone that's with him, and he sees her, and he says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So this is the third part of the story is that Jesus heals the woman. And notice first, take heart, daughter. Those words should sound familiar to us. They're the words that Jesus said to the paralyzed man who was brought to him. He said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So again, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. These are words of comfort and encouragement. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Everything's good now. And why? Because your faith has made you well. Notice, not my fringe of my garment has made you well, but your faith has made you well. Many people were rubbing up around Jesus and touching his clothes, and they weren't being healed. It was, it was her faith in him in that moment that made her well, and instantly she was healed. She was made clean. And then the scene picks up again. We're back with the ruler's house, and Jesus comes to the ruler's house now, and he enters a scene of death. There's flute players there. There's mourners there making a commotion. When we go to a funeral home, in our culture, we're supposed to be quiet and, and somber. But in Jesus' day, death was, the way they responded to death was, was to, to play sad music and to mourn and to wail and to weep because death is an enemy and death is intrusive. And Jesus enters this scene of death because the daughter has died and Jesus comes into this scene and he says, Go away for the girl's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus because she was dead. Jesus wasn't mistaken, though. Jesus, Jesus was not confused. He didn't just think she was sleeping. Here's the thing Jesus is saying. He's saying, now that I'm here, what was death is just going to be a nap. What, what was death is just going to be sleep. And he, and he sends them out. And then just, just like when you, when you go to your child who maybe who's, who's taking a, a long nap and it's time to wake up and you, and you come and you maybe just touch their hand. Jesus comes, he touches the girl's hand and, and, and she wakes up just like she was sleeping. That's what Jesus does to death. Just says, wake up. And she, and she wakes up, and, and the, all the people hear about what has happened, and, and Jesus' fame continues to spread. Not only can he heal, which we've seen, but he can even raise the dead back to life. That's the story that Matthew tells in these verses. And immediately we do see some things. We see Jesus' power again. We are reminded that Jesus has authority to heal. Now it's even more. Jesus has authority to raise the dead. His power is clearly on display in this story. But we need to dig a little deeper and ask, what is, Ma what is Matthew trying to say in his retelling of this story? It's so interesting that when you see the parallels, every parallel is a little bit different and because each author is making a distinct point in the way they tell these things. And so there's a few clues that we need to look at to see what is Matthew getting at in this story. And the first clue I want to point you to is verse 18, the context. Now, whenever you interpret anything in the Bible, you should be asking, what is the context? But there are some times where the author himself says to you, look at the context. And that's what Matthew does in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them. Normally, Matthew would just say, and then Jesus did this. But here he says, while he was saying these things to them, which is Matthew's way of saying to us as the reader, 
Think about the things Jesus just said as you think about this story. Put on the lenses of Jesus' teachings he's just given as you read this story. So what did Jesus just finish saying? What has he said? We need to think about that. Let's remember, first, he said, I am the great physician who came to heal sin-sick hearts. I I am the one who comes to sinners and makes them well again. He said that to religious leaders who wondered, why are you eating with them? And he says, I didn't come for I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. I came for the outsiders. I came for those who are outcasts, and I came to make them well. Then Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom of God's people who has come for my bride. A clear claim, and understand the Old Testament, to his own deity as God who comes for his people. And then he said, I am the new means of new covenant grace that's replacing all of the old covenant structures of Israel. The new wineskin for new wine. These are amazing claims. These are are incredible claims when you understand what Jesus is saying. These these are claims that call us to to ask, do we we believe that about this Jesus or not? And Matthew says, think about those claims as you read this story. The second clue is the contrast in this story between the ruler and the woman. Matthew tells the story and God providentially arranged these things in such a way that we have to see the ruler and the woman at once. We have to see them both at once because the way their stories are woven together. And we have two people that are as different as you can imagine. A respected religious leader in the Jewish community and a neglected, suffering, unclean outcast. And yet both their stories are in front of us. They couldn't be more different. And yet both their stories are woven together. We have to see that. We have to see what, what is Matthew doing by bringing these two people together in this story? What is, what is God doing in, in providentially arranging that. And then, there's a technical term here, we also see in this passage a chiasm. And if you don't know what a chiasm is, it's very simple. A chiasm is just a simple A, B, B, A structure. It's like an inverted structure. And just, just let me show this to you. In verse 18, 19, a ruler comes to Jesus. And then a woman comes to Jesus. Then Jesus heals the woman. And then Jesus heals the ruler's daughter. It's a very simple structure, right? But here's why it's important to see, because in chiasms, there's usually something in the middle. Whatever's in the middle shows you the author's point. And what's in the middle of this story are these words from Jesus. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. That's the very center point of this story. And so let's put all that together. The claims of Jesus, the contrast of these two people, the statement, your faith has made you well. And what is Matthew teaching us? And here's what it is. Anyone who responds to the truth of Jesus with true faith will be made truly well. Anyone who responds to the truth of Jesus with true faith will be made truly well. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what kind of person you are. It doesn't matter whether you are an outcast or an insider, whether you're religious or not, whether you've been a sinner or, or living a moral life. Anyone who responds to the truth of Jesus, who, who responds to the fact that he is the bridegroom, that he is the new covenant means of grace, that he is the, the physician who heals our hearts, anyone who responds to that truth with true faith, with personal living true faith, will be made well. And so this morning, what we want to do, as we've been looking recently at the claims of Jesus, is we want to ask, well, do I have true faith? 
And here's, here's the way this contrast works. When, when two people are so different, it highlights what they have in common. Right? And so we have these, these two totally different people from totally different situations, but we can see commonality between the ruler and the woman in this passage. And then what they have in common shows us what true faith is. And so this morning we're going to see three marks of true faith that we see in both the ruler and the woman that we need to ask, is this true in my life? First, true faith is desperate. True faith is desperate. Why did the ruler come to Jesus? Because his daughter was dead. And he was desperate to see her live again. Why did the woman come to Jesus? Because she had been suffering for 12 years. An outcast in society, and she was desperate to be made well. Their desperation drove them to Jesus. They were so different, and yet they both lived in this world. And anyone who lives in this world is going to suffer at some point and experience the realities of brokenness. And God often uses suffering in this way to make us desperate. Some of you first came to Jesus because you were experiencing something hard in your life and you were desperate for help. God used that. And yet I want to say this morning that whether we are in or have experienced immense suffering or not, according to the Bible, we all have reason to be desperate. Every one of us should be desperate if the scripture is true. If we believe the truth claims the scripture, then here's what we will realize, is that we are helpless and hopeless because of our sin. We are creatures who have rejected our creator. We are finite, dependent beings who have said to the one who made us and gives us life that we don't want you. And because of our rejection of him, and our rejection of his glory, and because of our sin, we deserve eternal punishment, and we are destined for this punishment, this wrath of God, this righteous punishment for our sin in hell that will go forever and ever and ever, and there's nothing that we could ever possibly do to to escape that. There's nothing we can do to change that situation. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We, there, there's there's no, nothing we could do. We could, we, he can't, Jairus couldn't raise his daughter back to life, and we cannot get ourselves out of this situation. Every human being, this is our plight. So if we read the scripture, then we desperately realize we need deliverance from our sin. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, this is exactly how it begins, is that Christian is reading the book that he's received, and he And he reads that he lives in the city of destruction. And because he lives in the city of destruction, he realizes that that he is destined for that destruction unless he escapes. And he becomes desperate to find a way to escape. This This is Martin Luther as he read the scriptures and he realized God's righteous demand on his life. He he was He was desperate. He hated God, he said, because he couldn't meet God's demands. And he realized he was going to suffer for his sin. And he was desperate because Scripture convicted him. This is where the law works. This is the way that God's word makes us desperate for salvation. But there's another side to this desperation, too. It's not just that we're desperate to escape from hell. If we read the Scriptures, it also makes us desperate for communion with God. It's not just, I need to get out of this eternal punishment. It's, I I want to be reconciled to my Creator. 
Scripture teaches us that we are made for the glory of God. Scripture teaches us that our hearts are, are going to be discontent and unsatisfied until we are reconciled to Him. Scripture teaches us that in His presence is fullness of joy. And so as we read the Scripture, we become desperate for Him. We become desperate to be brought back to Him. We, we become desperate for communion with Him and, and eternal life in His presence. And so every one of us, if we're reading the Bible, should be desperate this morning. The Bible should make us say, how, how can I ever escape from this punishment? And how can I be reconciled to this God that my soul thirsts after? This is the desperateness of faith. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have a desperate faith? Are you desperate for the Lord? Are you desperate for Christ? Are you desperate for deliverance from the wrath of God? Are you desperate for reconciliation to the presence of God? Even as believers, are you desperate to be set free from the sins that entangle you? Are you desperate to bear the fruit of the Spirit? Are you desperate to turn away from idols and to enjoy the glory of the one true God? Is there a desperateness that marks your faith? I need this. I have to have this. This is the driving desire in me that brings me to Jesus. Both the woman and the ruler show desperateness. And we need to ask God to give us this desperate faith. Now the second thing we see is that true faith is confident. True faith is confident. It's not only desperate, it's also confident. When the ruler's daughter died, the ruler said, if Jesus touches her, she'll live. The woman was suffering for 12 years and she said, if I touch his garment, I'll be made well. They were absolutely confident that Jesus could do what they were so desperate for him to do. And this is how Hebrews 11 describes faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. Faith is confidence. True faith is a confident faith in the one who can meet us in our desperateness and change our situation. Now, if you're like me, when you hear this word confident, you can begin to feel a little bit unsettled. Because you think to yourself, I don't know if I'm confident enough. I remember hearing our former pastor, Ryan Limbaugh, one day say, if there's one thing I'm certain of, it's that Jesus is coming back. And I remember feeling just in my heart so weak in that moment. I thought, I don't know if I could have said it that strongly. Certain? I felt doubt in my mind and heart. I mean, I believe it, but I struggle to believe it too. That's how I felt. But if true faith is confidence, then does that mean I didn't have true faith? If you doubt, do you not have true faith? If faith is confidence? And I want to touch on this this morning so that no one leaves here confused about this point. True faith is confidence, but we need to understand this morning that confidence does not exclude doubting or struggling. Let's think about a different story for a minute. There, there was a man who came to Jesus similarly for his child. His child was demon-possessed and was, was struggling, and this man comes to Jesus, but his statement was not, not touch him and he will live. He, he said, Jesus, if you can, then will you please help us? Now that's not very confident. Right? If you can. I hope you can. And Jesus picks up on this. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And you know how the man responded? He said, I believe. 
help my unbelief. You know how Jesus responded? He did for that man the same thing he did for the ruler and for the woman. He healed his son in response to this man's weak, fragile, doubting faith. I believe, help my unbelief. But that's confidence. That's confident faith. And and here's why that's confident faith, because he was bringing even his doubts to Jesus. You see, it it wasn't a focus on how much faith do I have. It was, I'm turning myself to him, and I'm placing my confidence in him. Church, there are days when I feel so certain of what we confess, what we said in the Apostles' Creed. I feel so certain of it. I don't, I don't think for a minute if it's not true. But then there are other days where I fall asleep praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's the last thing that I pray before I fall asleep because I feel it. I feel the doubts. I feel the questions. I feel the struggle. But true faith is confidence that Jesus will sustain our faith. True faith is bringing even those doubts to him. True faith is turning to him and placing your confidence in him. And so when I ask you this morning, are you confident? I do not mean to ask, do you have no doubts? Do you never struggle? That's not what I mean. When I say, are you confident? Do you have a confident faith? Here's what I'm asking. Are you placing your confidence in Jesus? Are you bringing your heart to Jesus? Are you even bringing your doubts to Jesus and saying, I need you to sustain this faith that you've put in me? True faith is a desperate faith and true faith is a confident faith. Well, you might be asking yourself, well, isn't there a passage that says we shouldn't ever doubt? The one who doubts is, you shouldn't pray with doubt. That's James, James 1, we see that. And there is a type of doubt that is unbelief, a true, true unbelief. And you might be asking, well, how do I know then? How do I know that my doubts are not doubts that show I don't really believe? And here's how you can tell if you have a truly confident faith. It's the third point that we see. True faith is active. True faith is active. True faith moves to Jesus. Listen, the ruler was desperate for help. His daughter had died. He was confident that Jesus could help him. So what did he do? Did he just stay at home and just enjoy those thoughts that Jesus could help my daughter? I'm confident he could. No. No, he, he went to Jesus. He went to Jesus and he got on his knees and he pleaded with Jesus to come and heal his daughter because he was desperate for help and he was confident Jesus could help. It moved him to Jesus. The woman was desperate for help, desperate for healing. She was confident that if she just touched the fringe of his garment, she could be made well. So what did she do? Did she just stay away because she was unclean and she wasn't supposed to do that? No, she made her way through the crowd to Jesus because she believed that he really could do it. True faith is active. True faith moves to him, moves to Jesus. Listen, there are some beliefs that we don't need to respond to and others that we do need to respond to. So if you came to my house, uh, we could tell you a fun fact. Our house was built in 1870, and you could say, uh, that's really interesting. Or you might say, that's really weird. Why would you want to live in an old house like that? But either way, you could hear that and believe it and not do anything. Your life wouldn't change at all. 
But if you came to our house and we were cooking and we forgot we were cooking and then there was a fire and, and I said, my house is on fire. Just calmly like that, of course, I would say it. But if I said that, if you believed me, you would say, oh, that's interesting. No, you would move. You would hopefully move and try to put out the fire, help me out. But you might just get out of the house, right? You might just escape, but, but if you believed it, you would do something. And, and so there are some truths that they're, they're so, they call us to action, that if you really believe it and you don't do anything, it shows you don't believe it, right? And so true faith is active. The gospel, the Apostles' Creed, the claims of Scripture, all of these things, they demand a response. If we are truly in this desperate situation where we are facing the wrath of God for our sins, and we, and we want communion with this God, and if we truly believe that Jesus is the one and the only one who can do that, and then we don't come to him? Then what is that? That's not faith. True faith is active. True faith moves to Jesus. True faith actively seeks him. And so I want to ask you this morning, is your faith active? And here's exactly what I mean by this. Do you actively bring yourself to Jesus? by opening the scriptures and seeking to know him more? Do you actively bring yourself to Jesus by pouring out your heart before him in prayer? Do you actively bring yourself to Jesus by bringing your sins and struggles to him and seeking his forgiveness, seeking his help? Do you actively bring yourself to Jesus by devoting yourself to the preaching of his word and the fellowship of his people? Does your desperation for Jesus and confidence in Jesus lead you to actively seek Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with him where you, you, are, you, you yourself are coming before him? That needs to be happening if you have true faith or else it's just cold orthodoxy. Now you come to him. You bring yourself to him. And I call you this morning if you believe in the desperateness of your situation, and if you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the one and only Savior of the world, then bring your heart to him. Confess your sins to him. Cry out for his help and enjoy his presence. And listen, for every person who does this, every person who in their desperation and their confidence actively comes to Jesus, here's what I can say to you this morning. You can take heart. You can take heart this morning because everyone who responds to the truth of Jesus with true faith will be made truly well. Let's think about that for a minute as we close today. What does that mean to be made truly well? Well, just a short time after Jesus healed this woman and raised this ruler's daughter, Jesus went to the cross. And he died and he rose again on the third day. And because of this, here's what we can say, that his death gives us the true cleansing that we need. His death gives us the cleansing of our sins that we desperately need. The, 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 the true uncleanness that we have is not an external uncleanness. It's, a, it's an inward sinfulness that keeps us from God. But Jesus took our sins on himself and his blood washes us from our sins. Everyone who trusts in him receives immediate cleansing from their sin. If you trust in Jesus, if you bring yourself to him in desperation and confidence and cry out to him, you can be cleansed from your sins right now. 
And this is a cleansing that we continually need throughout our lives, bringing ourselves to Jesus, confessing our sins, and knowing that he cleanses us of our sin. But it's not just cleansing now, church. It's not just cleansing now and then one day we die because Jesus brings the wellness of resurrection life. You know, this, this picture of Jesus saying, saying he's, she's not just dead but sleeping. If you continue reading the New Testament, you're going to find the apostles decide that's the word we're going to use to talk about Christians who die. We're going we're gonna to say they're asleep. And, and they don't mean that, that we're in this unconscious state. We know that our spirit's immediately going to be with Christ when we die. But they're talking about the reality that, that our dead bodies will come back to life one day so that it really was just like a nap. Jesus is going to raise us up again one day because he rose again. Because he rose again, because he lives, we will live with him forever. We, have that, we will be made truly well, finally well, perfectly well when Jesus returns and raises us up with him. That's the hope that we have this morning, immediate cleansing an eternal life with resurrection bodies before him forever. This is what Jesus does for all who come to him with true faith. And so as we sing, I call you this morning to pour out your heart in desperateness for Jesus. Confident that he died for our sins and rose again. Bringing yourself to him and celebrating that anyone who does that receives immediate cleansing from your sin and the hope of eternal life with him forever.